Thank you, Mark. Well, good morning, everyone. Don't you love Christmas? It even is beginning to look a lot like Christmas out there, right? We woke up this morning to this winter wonderland. You came this morning and everything's kind of changed. If you were here last Sunday, you know the banners were different, so we kind of have the the Christmas banners up and the decoration that uh, Tina and uh, Tina Janke, my wife, and Jen uh, Radke, Leanne Liske uh, did this week with the Christmas trees. And um, just a great reminder for us that we head into this wonderful season where we celebrate uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. I, uh, when I was a little bit younger, well, up until just a few years ago, actually, um, one of the things that I did uh, my whole life, really, from as young as I can remember, um, well into my adult, was play soccer. And uh, it's my, by far my favorite sport. Uh, until a few years ago, I had to sort of hang up the cleats. Uh, too many, like, nagging injuries after every single game, it uh, just got to the point where it just wasn't worth it. When you can't get out of bed the next morning, uh, it was uh, time to call it quits. However, um, as much as I love the competition and the sport and, and uh, it, itself, the thing I loved the most was just hanging out with other guys. Um, I, you know, when you work in ministry, you're surrounded by other believers, and so you just don't get a chance that much to rub shoulders with those that, that don't share your faith. And so that was always an opportunity for me to connect with, uh, with people who were not yet followers of Christ. And one of my friends, uh, we spent a lot of time, this is when I lived uh, just outside of Ottawa, but we played in the Ottawa League, so we often had 30 to 45 minute drives to games, and we would often drive together, and we'd get into these great conversations and uh, Reza was from Iran. He was born and raised there, but he then went to England for school. He went to Florida for school, and he ended up in uh, going. Uh, he's a physician now, and so he, I think he did his his studies in, in at McGill, and uh, ended up in the Ottawa area. And we became friends. And so we're driving one day, and we're talking about faith. He's asking me some questions, and one of the things that he said that just really surprised me. He says, "You know." I, I'm obviously Muslim, he says, but I can't even call myself that because I'm not practicing my faith. And I, I remember just kind of looking at him, I go, really? I said, man, I, I wish that were true of those who call themselves Christians, but aren't living it out as well. He was kind of surprised by that comment, but really, what we're going to look at this morning helps us unpack that a little bit. You see, James writes here at the end of chapter 2 to address this very issue, that there are those who claim to have faith, but don't demonstrate it by their actions. And he asks a very, very important question that we all should take to heart this morning. He says, can that kind of faith save anyone? Can that kind of faith, what kind of faith is he talking about here? So we're going to look a little bit deeper into that. We're in this series that we've been calling Keeping It Real. And uh, we're asking the question throughout, what does real faith look like? James wrote this letter to Jewish Christians who were scattered due to the persecution they were experiencing because of their new faith. And so he writes to encourage them to continue to keep their faith real and keep it vibrant, even in the midst of the trials and temptations and challenges that they were facing. In the last couple of weeks, Pastor Adam and Pastor Ken addressed the very real issue of favoritism or prejudice and how at its core is sin. Now, today's passage doesn't 
get any easier. In fact, it's, it's a difficult passage in some respects. Because James in these verses clearly explains the difference between what I'll call a fake faith or a false faith and real faith. And it's crucial that we understand the difference ourselves. Because it would be easy for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that we have a real faith when in fact we might have a false faith. You see, James has already said that those who only listen to the word but don't do what it says are self-deceived. That's in verse 22 of the first chapter. And now here in this passage, three times he writes specifically about this false faith. (coughs) Excuse me. In verse 17, he calls it dead and useless. In verse 20, false faith is useless. And then in verse 26 again, he says that false faith is a dead faith. Dead and useless. Those are fairly strong words. It seems to me then that it's important for us to know the difference between real and false faith. And James makes it clear in these verses. So I'm going to give you this morning two points, followed by Two arguments followed by two examples and then two closing comments, okay? So today's sermon is brought to you by the number two. Two points. First is this. This is in verses 14 through 17. That faith is demonstrated by our actions. That faith is demonstrated by our actions. So James asks two questions in verse 14. First question is, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters... If you say that you have faith, but don't show it by your actions. And then the second question is, again, I've already referred to, he says, can that kind of faith save anyone? So the first question, James is making really, in essence, in this passage, the bold statement that faith without works is a dead faith. It's useless. It has no saving value. And so James presents a hypothetical person who comes and says, you have faith, or, 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 or claims to have real faith. And the first thing we should notice is that he does not say that this person actually has real faith. It's just that he says that he says he does, or claims that he does have faith. And the second question, can that kind of faith save anyone, is so structured in the Greek that it actually expects a negative answer. In other words, James is asking, this faith without actions can't save him. Can it? He's asking a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no. No, it can't save him. There is nothing of value in just talking, but not doing, and doing nothing. So the first point is this, that faith is demonstrated by our actions. And the second one, then, is that faith without works cannot save. Faith without works cannot save. Now, that's going to unsettle us a little bit, but let me unpack it. Because there's another point that James is trying to make here. Because he asked the question, can such faith, can that kind of faith save him? And the faith that James is referring to is a faith without works. And so again, the answer is no, such faith can't save anyone. Real faith is a faith that proves itself by actions. Now James is not talking about works that somehow earn the favor of God. That somehow if we do the right things that we're going to get, you know, the brownie points with God that we need. But he is talking about a real, genuine faith that ultimately results in a transformed life. 
A life that is almost completely radical in its obedience to the will of God. In fact, Jesus is calling into question, any, or sorry, James is calling into question any claim of faith that is just superficial. He said it again. He, he said this over several times in chapter 1, but he's saying it again. Listen, there's absolutely no point in talking about your faith if you aren't going to live it out. And I think James anticipates his readers saying, well, James, what, what, what do you actually mean? And so he gives them this example, an illustration here. And so looking at verse 15 now, he, he gives the illustration. He says, suppose then that you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing. Okay, he says, imagine a fellow Christian, someone who's claiming to also have faith, who is starving and naked. Okay? It's a, it's a pretty vivid picture. There's no food, no clothing. They are in total desperate need. The need is so obvious that you just, you just can't even miss it. But all you can say to that person is, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, right? It, 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 it's just absolutely absurd because it's like, bye-bye, right? See you later. Have a good day. Hope you find some warm clothes somewhere along your journeys. Maybe somebody else will feed you. Right? It's just totally ridiculous. And, and James is being intentionally absurd here. Instead of meeting their obvious need for food and clothing, really, you're just going to send them on their way? And he says, what good does that do? What good does that do? So, in verse 17, he just restates this point again. He says, you see, faith by itself isn't enough. You hear that? Faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. He says, it is dead and useless. So said another way, it's just faith without works is dead. Right? Faith without works is dead. So those are the two main points that he's, that he's making here. And he follows it up with these two arguments. James goes on then and provides a couple of arguments to support these points that faith without works is dead. It's useless. It's pointless to talk about our faith if there is no discernible action, no discernible difference. There's no doing. And he says this. He says, listen, works are necessary to prove real faith. To prove real faith. So he says in verse 18, now someone may argue some people have faith and others have good deeds. In other words, someone tries to argue James's point that faith without works is dead by saying that faith and works are not necessarily related to each other and that it is maybe possible to have one without the other. This someone is basically claiming that it's almost too much to expect both faith and works. Did I just start to glow radiantly all of a sudden? James counters this argument of someone and says, still now in verse 18, he says, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? How can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? In other words, he says, okay, show me your faith without deeds. It would be like me saying, 
you know, like, like you coming to me and saying to me, I believe, I have faith, and I say, great, that's wonderful. Now prove it. How would we prove it? By our actions. The only evidence to prove that our faith in Jesus Christ is real is by what we do, how we live. You can't talk about your faith all day long Or you can talk, sorry, about your faith all day long, but it doesn't really matter what you say, right? Words are cheap. Words are empty. And the question is, can other people see hard evidence of our faith? And that's why James comes back and he says this, I will show you my faith by my good deeds. James is a man of faith. So he stands before them and he says, listen, listen. I'm going to show you my faith. I will demonstrate it. I will prove it by my good deeds. The second argument James makes is this, is that real faith is more than just belief. Real faith is more than just belief. See, this is the the second argument now that he uses to prove that faith without works is dead. He goes on to say in verse 19, in essence, that, a, that an intellectual faith or, or head knowledge about God or belief is far from the real, genuine faith that truly trusts in Jesus and results in obedience to him. You look at verse 19, he says, you say you have faith. Again, right? They're declaring that they have faith. And he says, you're, you're saying that you have faith because you believe that there is one God. You believe that there is one God. Remember, these are Jewish Christians. And so every day, all faithful Jews would recite Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So it would be a daily declaration of their faith about what they believe. And so James is almost applauding his Jewish believers and, and saying, yes, great, there, there is one God. You're right, that's true. But you can almost hear maybe a little hint of sarcasm when he says, good for you. But just believing that, he says, is not enough to save them. James continues to develop this argument. He says, you believe there is only one God, that's great, but listen, even the demons believe this. They believe that God exists. And because of who God is and who they are, their only response is to tremble in terror. They're totally frightened by that knowledge. The demons know that there's only one God. It scares them, but it doesn't save them. Real faith, then, is not just saying the right things, because anyone can do that. And real faith is not just believing the right things, believing there is a God, because in the words of James, even the demons believe in God. Real faith ultimately proves that it is genuine because of what it does. And so James just keeps circling back to this point. He's saying, listen, friends, real faith results in changed lives. It makes a difference in a person's lifestyle. Faith, if you can call it that, maybe we should call it a fake faith, is is faith without works, and it's dead and useless. And James is so passionate about this. Look at how strong his language gets. In verse 20, he starts to wrap up these arguments with this statement. He says, how foolish. I like the NIV better because he's much more pointed. He says, you foolish person. 
This is a little softer. How foolish. It's just dumb. Can't you see that faith without good work deeds is useless? Ouch. <laughs> We're foolish if we can't see that faith without works is useless. Now let me just give you, I think, two important aspects of these arguments that can be dangerous if we don't get this right. So the first one that we should now know very clear is that, that, that faith without works, it, it's dead. But, but just having faith without works, it's dangerous because it can lull you into a false sense of security. It's not a real saving faith if there is no works, if there's no tangible evidence of a transformed life because of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. The second danger is the opposite of that is having works without faith. That's kind of scary too because you begin to think that because you're doing all the right things, you will be saved. James says, can that kind of faith save anyone? What James is getting at reminds me about the sobering words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. During what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this beginning in verse 21, chapter 7. And, it, and these are unsettling words. They've, they've, they've always kind of stopped me dead in my tracks whenever I read them. But this is what Jesus says about this. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. In other words, they had all sorts of good works. But Jesus' response to them is, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. It's unsettling, right? To think about that. You see, faith, the kind with no works, is not enough. Nor are works with no faith enough. Only Jesus is enough. And it's not just an intellectual acceptance of the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. And it's not just talking about our faith in Jesus. It's walking the walk. It is through faith and repentance. It is by trusting in Jesus and then living as Jesus lived, walking as Jesus walked. It's not just an intellectual acceptance. To put it another way, it is a faith that works. We have faith in Jesus that is so real and genuine, and it's proven by, to be real by our actions, our works. Now James goes on to give us two examples of people who demonstrated their faith by their actions. And one thing I'll say right up front is just think about when they expressed their faith in God and then when they did the actions that he talks about. 
In verse 20, the New International Version was translated, I said, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Do you want some examples, he says? And so then in verse 21, he, he gives them evidence of these two people. He says, you want evidence? I'll give you evidence. Number one, Abraham. He says, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So James clearly says that Abraham demonstrated his faith, his pre-existing faith from earlier on in his life, by his actions now, through his obedience, through his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. And then in verse 22, he explains this further. He says, you see, his faith, that's Abraham's faith, and his actions, they work together. His actions made his faith complete. James also makes it clear that he is not saying that works saved Abraham. He, he, he does, says basically that, that faith and works, they're almost inseparable. Now this doesn't mean that, that Abraham was made right with God because of some mixture of faith and works, with each carrying equal weight. You see, Abraham was already made right with God. He already had his faith in God. But then later in his life, when God called him to obedience, Abraham demonstrated his faith by his actions or by his works. His works, in, in the words of James here, he says he, they completed or they, they proved his faith. You see, Abraham, by his obedience, was showing that he truly had faith. And so we could say that Abraham had a faith that works. And James goes on to say this about Abraham, verse 23 and 24. He says, And so it happened, just as the Scripture said, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. It's Genesis 15, verse 16 is what James is quoting there. And he says he was even called a friend of God. So that's the example of Abraham. Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith, and then he proved that faith through his willing obedience to an incredible call on his life by God. The second example, then, is Rahab. And, it, and this, is, this is an interesting one because, you know, it's easy to look at Abraham and say, oh, well, he's the patriarch of the faith, and, you know, he's a friend of God, he was this great person, and uh, at least it would so seem there's, there's some shadow sides to some of the things that Abraham did. But Rahab, on the other hand, is almost the opposite end of the spectrum. Okay? Rahab was a prostitute. And she, in, in, in this example that James uses, he's, he's using her now to, to demonstrate that real faith evidence is itself in good works as well. She's a prostitute in the city of Jericho. And, and you, you may know the story where Joshua and the people of Israel, they're about to begin their conquest of the land of Canaan. And so Joshua sent spies ahead and into the city to go check things out. And they go and hide, interestingly enough, in Rahab's house. Maybe they thought nobody would suspect strangers there in his house, in her house. Now, the king of Jericho, though, he finds out about this, and he sends some men to Rahab's house to search for these spies. But Rahab actually covers for them and eventually helps them to escape. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 2, the first 16 verses. So James then writes this about Rahab. He says, Rahab the prostitute is another example. 
She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Now, again, Rahab already had faith before the spies arrived at her home. Her actions were the result of the faith that she already had. So she too had a faith that works. The point about each of these examples is that they did something. They did not just claim to have faith and then did nothing as a result. Their faith resulted in works. Both Abraham and Rahab demonstrated their faith by their actions, by their works. And so let me just make two closing comments. I hope that through these two points that I've made, the two arguments and the two examples that that James gave us, I've helped you to understand some of these comments, but just in case, let's review them. Because first in verse 24, he says, So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Now, when you first read that, or you hear that maybe for the first time, you're like, wait a minute. I thought we always say that we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone. And on the surface, what James is saying here, it almost appears to contradict what the Apostle Paul taught about salvation when he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. He says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. So yes, absolutely, we are saved by God's grace alone. But he even makes it clear that our salvation is a reward for our good works. According to Paul, faith is the only way to be saved. And he is right. But James is simply making the points that faith then is demonstrated by our action. And faith without works cannot save. And that's because real faith is a faith that works. Real faith results in action. And so Paul also wrote about this quality of faith when he said to the Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Right? So there's always a demonstration, an expression of our faith that is tangible and real and easy to see. So it's true. We're only saved by grace through faith, but by its very nature, this faith results in good works. Which Paul says are works, in fact, that God prepared in advance for us to do. It was all part of his plan. Now there's another statement that James makes that really sums all of uh, these words up. In verse 26 he says, Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Now this is a strong and clear summary. Jesus, or sorry, James again, compares faith without works and a corpse without breath and says that they're both dead. It's obvious. Now James has clearly been warning us about the dangers of a dead, useless faith. That is, a faith that claims to believe in Jesus but then gives no tangible evidence of it. He stated this again and again. Faith without works is dead. When there is no obvious evidence of faith, there's no real faith to begin with. 
Again, not to belabor the point, but James is saying that those who truly understand the gospel, those who understand salvation, people who have a real saving faith, can't help but live a life of obedience. That they will simply express their faith by their works. They will have a faith that works because works are the inevitable result of this saving faith. The vision of TCC is, is this, is to see everyone at TCC passionately walking with Jesus in order to joyfully serve others. You see, passion is somewhat subjective. Like we, it, It's hard to, to see or define it in some ways. But that passion in walking with Jesus, it, it starts with a real genuine faith. A passion to really know Jesus. To know him intimately, to know him personally, to walk with him daily. And then the result of that passionate faith is expressed in our joy of serving others. It's expressed in our good works. It's it's expressed in our love for others. And friends, the application of this truth is so broad that I, I we, could, we could just all go on and talk about our own ideas of how do I live out my faith? Because all we need to do is look at our actions. Look at the daily activities of our day, of our lives, and ask, did we live out our faith today? That's all you got to ask. At the end of the day, when you lay your head in bed, say, did I live out my faith today? This past week, what did I do? This coming week, what will I do? A little later, just before the conclusion of the service, you're going to hear from Marnie. And, and I think she's at least going to talk about this. You can talk about Twilliger Cares too. And Okay, good. Um, and, and, and she'll tell you about it. It's just a really practical way for us to demonstrate our faith. Remember how James illustrated real faith by saying that, that how we respond to those who are in need of food and clothing reveals the true nature of our faith? Friends, it, it, it shouldn't surprise us, right, that there are those in our city who are in desperate need of, of warm socks and toques and winter jackets because they spend their nights on the streets or at a homeless shelter like Hope Mission or Mustard Seed or these kind of places. There are babies in our city that are born into families who are living in poverty and they have almost nothing to support those, those little babies. And through the reach of basically babies, we can provide them with everything they need to clothe an infant for a whole year. And we can start with just giving a basic thing like sleepers because they need something like 18000 a year, something like that. It's crazy because they serve three, four, five, six, I think it was 800 families with that. You see, when desperate need is met by loving actions. And there's a real desire to see those needs met. Amazing things can happen. You know, and it's fitting on this first Sunday of Advent to remind ourselves of why Jesus came. You see, God saw the need that we had. God saw our desperation. Our sin had separated us from God. And we were due to pay the penalty for our sin. And so God sent his son in the form of a baby born to a a virgin, placed in a manger. A baby that was both fully God and fully man. So God saw the desperate need that we had for a savior. That we were desperate for the forgiveness of sins. And so he took action. He gave us 
the greatest gift ever. And Jesus came and lived among us. And he died for our sins. But he rose again so that we have the promise of eternal life. And the Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See the connection? God looks at at humanity and sees their need and is moved by his love for them, for us. And he sends us his son. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. All we have to do to bring to him is our sin and say, I believe that you died for my sins. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And communion is an opportunity for us to remember this loving action of God and to say thanks. Because without the work of Jesus, we would still be in desperate need. And he met that need. And so we're going to remember around the table this morning We're going to distribute a a piece of bread that is a symbol of his body. And then a cup of grape juice that is just symbolic of the blood that Jesus shed for us. And so we're going to remember this together. And so I'm going to invite the servers to come and join me here at the table. The worship team will also come and take their place. And they'll lead us in some singing during our our time of communion. But remember that these elements, they're, they're symbols And if you have put your faith in Jesus, and maybe this morning, when you said, when I said, you know, did you live out your faith this week? Was there something tangible? Was there evidence of your faith? And you said, I wasn't there. That wasn't me. You can just offer that to Jesus. Ask for his forgiveness. Ask for his empowerment to help you Live the life that he's called us to. This isn't about us becoming morally good people and stepping it up a little bit and and, and caring for people. It's a recognition that the faith that we have in Jesus Christ is lived out through our obedience in a daily way. And so today, we give thanks for what made that possible. And Rudy's going to return thanks for these elements. Lord, it is for this reason that you came to this earth. Um, You knew the cost. You knew what you were giving up, and you knew what you were coming to. You knew the road ahead of you, and yet you still came, only because you loved us, because you wanted to um, redeem us with your blood, with your body. We just are eternally grateful for what you've done. There is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. As we take these symbols, Lord, help us to not only remember, but to um, also realize that we are celebrating this fact, and that one day we will eat with you in glory. We give you thanks and all the praise. Amen.